today, uh, before going any further, uh, we are going to continue our series within Luke. But I, I want to state that I, I was reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer, his work on discipleship, as I was preparing for this message. And inevitably, his work has influenced today's uh, sermon. <clears throat> so, you guys could take a seat. Um, we'll read the scriptures in a little bit. So, Bonhoeffer, he, he is one of my heroes. He lived during Nazi Germany. Um, while virtually all the German churches supported Nazism, Bonhoeffer formed a coalition of churches that denounced what the Nazis and churches were doing. Bonhoeffer believed that Christians ought to live differently. Christianity is more than just believing. Bonhoeffer believed that Christianity was discipleship. The text we will be reading today will demonstrate how Jesus expected his followers to respond. Do we just affirm a certain number of truths, of biblical truths, and live like the world? Or is there something much more? Let's see for ourselves. If you do have your Bibles, feel free to join me. We will be going to Luke 9, 23 to 26. It's also on your notes. So feel free to take notes as I'm reading. But Luke 9, 23 to 26. And they'll be on the screen as well. <clears throat> Luke 9, 23 to 26. And then after that, we'll be going to Luke 14, 25 to 33. But first, Luke 9, 23. I'll be reading from the NIV. And it, and it goes like this. Then he said, this is Jesus, to all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake or for me will save it. Verse 25. What good is it for Someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the angels. And then a few pages later in chapter 14, verse 25, it says like this. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, and I know this might sound kind of crazy, but just stick with me, we'll talk about it later. Such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. 
Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together this day. I pray that you may be in our midst and that your spirit may speak to all of us. That today, as we look at your word, your spirit may be unveiling your truths. And that you may move our hearts, guide us, guide us to the place you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Discipleship. It's one of the most prominent themes within the book of Luke and the teachings of Jesus. It's one of the most essential tenets of Encounter Church. In fact, we exist to make disciples. The church at large is supposed to make disciples. Remember the last words of Jesus Christ in the Great Commission? Go and make disciples. Disciples. Those were his last words. Discipleship is a big deal for Jesus. Here's an interesting quote from Dallas Willard, a philosophy professor who taught at the University of Southern California in LA. This is what he said. He said in the following slide The word disciple occurs 269 times in the New Testament. Christian is found only three times and was first introduced to refer precisely to the disciples. The New Testament is a book about disciples, by disciples, and for disciples of Jesus Christ. Yet more and more, we have failed to make disciples. Sometimes churches think that their main goal is to argue about their differences among each other, about secondary issues. But the church is supposed to make disciples. Unfortunately, churches have opted for cheap grace instead of costly grace. Maybe they have reduced the message of Christ as a religious act that we do on Sundays. But Jesus' message about discipleship calls us to so much more. Something whole, and it involves our entire lives. Bonhoeffer said, Jesus calls us not to a new religion, but to a new life. Sadly, in recent years, churches of the West, that is, churches in America and Europe, have not made discipleship part of being a Christian. Dallas Willard, the professor I mentioned before, he said this, One is not required to be or to intend to be a disciple in order to become a Christian. And one may remain a Christian without any signs or 
progress toward or in discipleship. Contemporary American churches do not require to follow Christ in example, in his example, spirit, and teachings as a condition of membership. Discipleship clearly is optional. Churches are filled with undiscipled disciples. Most problems in contemporary churches can be explained by the fact that members have not yet decided to follow Christ. Yeah, this is a sad reality. And I really hope that Encounter Church keeps this reality in mind. We don't want to give this false idea that you could be part of the body of Christ without following Jesus. We love you and welcome you even if you don't follow Jesus. But don't get the false idea, the false reality that you are a Christian. There is a need to follow him. There is a need to decide to follow him. We do not want to offer cheap grace. We need to present costly grace. Bonhoeffer said, cheap grace means grace as bargain basement goods. Cut rate forgiveness, cut rate comfort. Grace as the church's inexhaustible pantry from which it is doled out by careless hands without hesitation or limit. It is a grace without a price, without cost. Bonhoeffer continued and said that cheap grace means grace as doctrine, as principle, as system. It means forgiveness of sins as a general truth. It means God's love as merely a Christian idea of God. There's this idea that Christians better not defy cheap grace By proclaiming the need for service and obedient life under the commandments of Jesus Christ. But cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without repentance. It is baptism without the discipline of community. It is the Lord's Supper without confession of sin. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without the loving incarnate Jesus Christ. Cheap grace is not the type of grace Jesus offered. Yet it is the type of grace that churches present. We need to be true to the words of Jesus. To what he would say to us today. What I think is not important. What another church leader may say, that's irrelevant. What matters is what Jesus has said. There are so many sounds coming from churches. Much of it is human. Some of it is harsh laws. And others are false hopes, which blind what Jesus actually said. We need to preach Christ alone. There are a lot of people who go to churches wanting to hear, not a preacher, but Christ. 
And unfortunately, preachers can make it hard to know Jesus. I don't want to deny you the opportunity to hear the opportunity of hearing the words of Jesus. I don't have all the answers, but I do have a Savior who knows what you're going through. Christians get into debates about rules and specific formulations. We get into arguments about our own opinions and convictions, but we don't preach Christ enough. What did Jesus preach? Jesus preached costly grace. Costly grace is the hidden treasure in the field for the sake of which people go and sell with joy everything they have. Costly grace is the call of Jesus Christ, which causes a disciple to leave his nets and follow him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift with which has to be asked for, the door at which one has to knock. Jesus taught a type of grace that is costly. This is what Jesus said. We, we read in our first reading, Jesus told his disciples that whoever wants to be his disciple must deny themselves Take up their cross daily and follow him. This is crazy for anyone to ask. But this is the type of loyalty that Jesus expects from his followers. Disciples are students. Our followers are apprentices, as John Mark Comer puts it. And according to Dallas Willard, the disciple of Jesus is not the deluxe or heavy-duty model of the Christian, especially padded, textured, streamlined, and empowered for the fast lane on the straight and narrow way. He stands on the pages of the New Testament as the first level of basic transportation in the kingdom of God. We might have distinctions between a Christian and a disciple of Jesus. But Jesus believed that anyone who really followed him and his teachings was his disciple. And for anyone to be an apprentice of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, they must deny themselves. This means that we don't put ourselves first, our desires first. We, we don't do that. And that sounds kind of crazy to hear that in modern America and the selfie generation when we just want to please ourselves with whatever pleases us. And we might also think that someone who denies him or self is someone who doesn't have any fun. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. According to some scholars, this means, denying yourself means that as Christians, we will not set our desires and our will against the right Christ has to our lives. It does not mean cultivating a weak, non-assertive personality or merely denying ourselves certain pleasures. By denying ourselves, we're saying that we don't put ourselves first. We recognize that we don't live for ourselves. 
We live for Christ, for Christ's sake, not for our own sake. And Jesus also said that we are supposed to take up our cross daily and follow him. 2,000 years after Jesus, the cross seems to be more of a fashion statement. Maybe it communicates that you are a Christian. Maybe it communicates that you like the teachings of Jesus. Or you just like the design, and that's why you may wear the cross somewhere. But during the Roman era, the cross was a sign of shame. The cross was a form of capital punishment that the Romans reserved for the, for the worst of criminals. Criminals would pick up their cross from the site of sentencing and carry it to the place of crucifixion. In our picture, you could see in the center, Jesus is taking his cross to the place where he would die. It was a one-way journey. There was no going back. And on the way to the place of crucifixion, the criminals would be shamed by the crowds. And yet, Jesus is telling us that if we want to be his disciple, we must be willing to pick up our cross daily. We must bear the shame that would come with the cross. We must be willing to suffer at the expense of dying. This is no joke. Jesus is probably using the metaphor, a metaphor, using the cross as a metaphor. He's not talking about literal martyrdom, although some have died for the faith. The reason that it's probably a metaphor is that you can't literally die on the cross every day because once you physically die, you can't die again. So it's more of a metaphor. But still, the main point is that you shouldn't take this lightly. I remember one time attending this one church and the preacher was preaching about wholeheartedly following Jesus, being willing to live in shame and die for Jesus. And while the pastor was preaching, somebody sitting in the row in front of me, th this person said, you're being extreme. That's what she was saying when the pastor was preaching about following Jesus wholeheartedly. Only if she knew what Jesus actually taught. Jesus taught some extreme stuff. He taught that following him meant to pick up our cross daily, being willing to be shamed daily, being willing to die daily, literally and spiritually, mortifying the flesh, saying no to sin, and being willing to stand for Jesus even when people may be against us. Bonhoeffer said, whenever Christ calls us, he calls us to death. This death could mean the daily struggle against sin and being willing to face the possibility of persecution. These are prerequisites of following Jesus. And we need to do this daily. It's not one day after an excellent church service that we decide to follow Jesus. 
and then the next day we forget about following Jesus. No, that's not discipleship. We must follow Jesus daily. And look, I I get it. Sometimes we do forget. But when we do, disciples will pray, forgive us our trespasses. Then disciples get back up and try to follow Jesus daily again. One modern scholar of Luke, Joel B. Green, said, Those who choose to follow Jesus may expect nothing other than the opposition that will become his trademark by the end of the narrative. In the end, what happened to Jesus? We should all know the story. He died on the cross as an innocent man. If we're going to follow this man we should expect the possibility of facing what he faced, of also dying or suffering. We suffer as followers of Christ. Discipleship is being bound to the suffering Christ. We suffer because we try to live according to God's purpose in a world that resists God. We try to live like Jesus. And if we do that, we will encounter hostility and experience great suffering. We live, fortunately, in peaceful times here in America. But we shouldn't forget that we still live in a godless world. So don't be surprised about suffering for the sake of Christ. As disciples, we must embrace The way of the cross. I mentioned earlier that Jesus' grace is costly. I think we're seeing why it's costly. Bonhoeffer said, costly grace is costly because it calls to disciple. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs people their lives. It is grace Because it thereby makes them alive or live. We preach costly grace. Jesus taught that whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for him, they will be saved. Some people want to keep a part of themselves. They want to, so to speak, save their lives. But they're, 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 they're basically saying, Jesus, you're cool, but I, I want to keep things my way. I, I want to save certain things for myself and not give them to you. Sadly, that leads to destruction. But if you give your whole self away, if you give yourself to Jesus, you are willing to die for him. You deny yourself, you follow him, and you die to yourself. That's when you will truly be saved. That's when you will live. Following your own desires will lead to trying to gain the whole world, experiencing everything the world has to offer, getting all the possessions that you can get. But while you're at it, you will lose your true self. What's the point? Of gaining the whole world if you lose yourself. 
Therefore, don't, don't try to save yourself. <laughs> I know this sounds paradoxical, but that's what it is. It's a paradox. If you lose your life for Jesus, if you give your life to Jesus, he will save it. He will save your life. The scholar I mentioned before, Green, this is what he said on losing one's life for Jesus. What Jesus is asking is that people give up their lives, their relationships, their conceptions of the world, and the practices that flow from these in order to follow him and the unreserved commitment to the salvific purpose of God. One cannot cling to this life and also serve the redemptive plan of God. It's not about just dying and becoming a martyr. It's about giving up our relationships, giving up our conceptions of the world and the practices that follow so that we can wholeheartedly follow Jesus. Then Jesus said, if you're ashamed of him and what he is saying, if you're embarrassed about these words, he, the son of man, will be ashamed of you when it matters. He will not recognize you as his son or daughter before the glory of the Father and the holy angels. So don't take this lightly. Of course, this is a process. But we do need to be a group of people who are unashamed of our leader, Jesus Christ. We can't be like... Uh, I like some things, and I don't, but I don't like other things of, that Jesus taught. No, Jesus calls us to full devotion. And if you are new here or you're just starting with this Jesus thing, that's fine. We're here to help you on this journey. We welcome you. We love you, but we're also honest. Following Jesus is a serious thing. Jesus believed that people who would follow him should expect ostracism. That's being excluded, isolated, conflict, and social dishonor. We probably don't expect these things as American Christians, but we should be aware that these are possibilities. We should expect the possibility of being ostracized and being dishonored. Of course, we don't look for it. We don't try to look for ostracism. But it does and can happen. Look, you don't have to follow Jesus. All that Jesus is doing is invitational. But if you do reject him and his message, and you do it maybe because you don't want to suffer shame before the world, know this, that according to Jesus, how you respond to his message will determine how Jesus will respond to you before his father. One scholar wrote and said, verse 28 reminds us of what we all know very well. The one of whom you are ashamed today may be your judge tomorrow. This is but a variation on the ancient proverb, whatever you sow, you will reap. 
If you reject Jesus, he will reject you when it matters. You reap what you sow. Right now, he accepts you as you are. He welcomes you, invites you. But there will be a time when it is too late. And honestly, if you did not follow him here, if you rejected his invitation in this lifetime, you probably wouldn't have followed him later anyways. Or you would follow him for the wrong reasons. Just to be aware, following or rejecting Jesus is a weighty choice. Loyalty to Jesus has its reward. Disloyalty has its consequence. If we are loyal to him in this time, he will be loyal to us in eternity. If we seek to follow him in this world, he will point to us as one of his people in the next world. But if by our lives we disown him, even though our lips may confess him, the day must come when he cannot do other than disown us because we truly didn't decide to follow him. Those who live a life without Jesus have chosen to live an afterlife without him. In the other passage that we read, we also saw some crazy things. He's talking to the crowds who were with him while he was traveling to Jerusalem. He was super popular. And, and if I was trying to keep a crowd, I wouldn't have said what he said. Jesus basically said that you need to hate your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even your own life. If you don't, then you cannot be a disciple of Jesus. But wait, aren't we supposed to love all, especially those closest to us? Yes, God calls us to love everyone. In Ephesians 5.25, God told husbands to love their wives. But yet, in the passage we read, Jesus says to hate wives and children, even one's own life. One scholar correctly noted, there is no place in Jesus' teaching for literal hatred. He commanded his followers to love even their enemies. So it is impossible to hold that he, he is here telling them literally to hate their earthly nearest. Like God told us to, hate, to love our enemies, so now he's telling us to hate those who are closest. So obviously he's not talking about literal hatred. This is a figure of speech. And according to other Greek scholars, hate is not an absolute but a relative term. We're not active in hating our wives or children. But Jesus is telling us that our devotion to Christ, our love for God, needs to be first. We need to love our spouse. We need to love our parents. But that love does not compare to the love that we should have for God. Relative to our love for God, people might say that we don't have the same level of love for our families. 
Another scholar recognized that misail, to hate, is usually said to have its Semitic sense, to love less. And that's true. Compared to our love for God, our love for family is less. Green said that disciples are characterized first by their distancing from the high cultural value placed on their family network, otherwise paramount in the world of Luke. That is, in this context, hate is not primarily an effective quality, but a disavowal of primary allegiance to one's kin. We're, we're still part of our family network. And it could be good, it could be great to be part of our families. But that is not the place where we give our primary allegiance as a disciple of Christ. Jesus is the one to whom we give our full allegiance. And unfortunately, nowadays, in a lot of our families, we can wholeheartedly serve Jesus as we serve our families. But this wasn't the case back then. Following Jesus meant that you were not part of the family anymore. And I do believe that one of the best ways you can serve your family is to love God. Because if we love him, we will follow what he has said about caring for our families. But note what Cyril of Alexandria, an early bishop, rightly said on this. It is plain that he permits us to love but not more than we love him. He demands our highest affection for himself in that very correctly. The love of God in those who are perfect in mind has something in its, in its superior both to the honor due to parents and to the natural affection felt for children. Our love for God needs to be higher than our love for people. And then again, Jesus gave his little recruitment pitch about following him. If you are going to follow him, you need to pick up your cross. Recognize that you, have, you, you will have to sacrifice everything. Then Jesus gave two parables, two stories. The first is about building a tower. When you build something, don't you first consider the expenses and resources necessary to build the building. If you don't, if you just start building, people may mock you. Oh, look, this person started building a tower that really, that he really didn't think through. And the building just stays like he started but never finished. And people mock him for that. The other parable is similar. Before going to battle, a king should first consider who is with him. How many soldiers does he have? How many soldiers does he, his enemy have? If the king does not consider what he has before going to war, he's going to lose quickly and try to negotiate some sort of truce right away. In the same way, people who are considering following Jesus need to assess the cost. Don't just follow Jesus mindlessly. No, so many have done that, and they end up like the builder or the king who did not adequately assess their situation. So many people begin to follow Jesus without really thinking about the cost. 
And they stop following Jesus after a few months or years. It costs everything to follow Jesus. It costs everything to identify with his message. And Jesus is asking you, are you sure you wish to follow me? Is the price more than you are willing to pay? There may be enthusiasm in the beginning. Well, my life, it'll get better if, if I follow Jesus. We've been reading the ruthless elimination of hurry in our small groups. Last week, we probably read the most important chapter. We want to follow Jesus because he gives us rest. His yoke is light. But so many want the benefits of the life of Jesus without adopting the lifestyle of Jesus. The lifestyle of Jesus involved the cross. And following Jesus involves carrying one's cross. You might feel the excitement in the beginning when you hear about Christ. Awesome. But do you possess the resources to carry it through completion? I'm asking you, do you know what you are doing? Do you realize what it means to follow Jesus? Have you counted the cost? I'm not trying to discourage you from following Jesus. I know that in America, churches have felt that that they need to stop talking about the cost or anything possibly discouraging. But I want to be honest with you, as Jesus was. Following Jesus costs everything. Are you willing to give it all to him? Following Jesus isn't some mental exercise that you just decide to do in your head. It's a hard reality with consequences and benefits. Don't rush into discipleship without contemplating what is involved. Jesus was clear to the crowds who were with him. And he is clear to us about the price. Leon Morris, a New Testament scholar, said, Anyone who comes to him must renounce all that he has. These words condemn all half-heartedness. Jesus is not trying to discourage discipleship. Instead, he is warning against ill-considered, faint-hearted, temporary attachment. You need to be serious about this. And again, if you're still unsure, that's okay. You're welcomed and loved. But we're going to be honest about following Jesus. And we're here to help without any judgment. But let me confess a reality about following Jesus. Following Jesus is fulfilling. Bonhoeffer said, if you look at the screen... In following Jesus, people are released from the hard yoke of their own laws to be under the gentle yoke of Jesus Christ. In the gentle pressure of this yoke, they will receive the strength to walk the right path without becoming weary. 
Jesus demands nothing from us without giving us the strength to comply Jesus' commandment. Jesus' commandment never wishes to destroy life, but rather to preserve, strengthen, and heal life. I know it seems contradictory, but it's more like a paradox. Yes, following Jesus includes suffering, but at the same time, you will experience the greatest peace. Bonhoeffer said, when Holy Scripture speaks of following Jesus, it proclaims that people are free from all human rules, from everything which pressures, burdens, or causes worry and torment of conscience. You are released from the weight of life, thinking you have to do everything by yourself. Jesus called us for greatness. And it might seem scary, but God knows what he is asking for. He knows that you can follow him. He gives you the strength to do it through his spirit. And as you follow Jesus, as you carry your cross, you will encounter his healing life. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, wrote on discipleship. He asked the question, how much of myself must I give to Jesus? C.S. Lewis said, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. C.S. Lewis is right. Christ wants it all. He will destroy the natural self, but he will make you new. And I know this is hard. This is part of taking up your cross and following Jesus. But this is also part of encountering peace. It was pretty straightforward to follow Jesus back Then, when Jesus walked among humans, following him meant literally following him. And now it may not be so clear. But we do know some things about discipleship from our study within Luke. Discipleship includes loving our enemies, blessing those who curse us, walking the second mile with an oppressor, in general, living out the gracious inward transformations of faith, hope, and love. This is part 
of giving your entire self to Christ. It seems impossible, but it's easier than the alternatives. We do have alternatives. You can decide, I'll give a little bit of myself to Christ instead of handing over the whole thing. Maybe with our friends or Fridays. Those are our days, but not Christ's days. But that just makes things more challenging. You're living a double life. Just give it all to Jesus. We could also choose this other alternative and face non-discipleship. Reject discipleship as a whole. As a whole. But there is a cost to non-discipleship. If you don't follow Christ, if you don't forfeit your life for Christ, there's a greater cost. Dallas Willard noted, non-discipleship, this is what non-discipleship costs, so discipleship costs carrying our cross. Non-discipleship costs abiding peace. We lose peace. A life penetrated through by love, faith that sees everything in light of God's overriding governance for good. Hopefulness that stands in the most discouraging of circumstances. Power to do what is right. We lose all of this if we choose non-discipleship. And being able to withstand the forces of evil. In short, non-discipleship costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. Yes, following Jesus costs everything. But through it, we experience abundance of life. Through it, we experience peace. Discipleship is a joy and it's full of mercy. But non-discipleship costs the ability to live in abundance. It costs the possibility of experiencing peace and liberation with Christ. Non-discipleship will give us a restless heart. Non-discipleship makes costly grace cheap grace. Without discipleship, costly grace would become cheap grace. But true discipleship brings costly grace. Consider the cost. Decide whether you will follow Jesus or not. Jesus has extended costly grace by the generous call that he has made to you. He has graciously called you to follow him just as you are. Grace is costly because it forces people under the yoke of following Jesus. It is grace when Jesus says, my yoke is easy my burden is light. After Jesus ascended, the church taught that baptism was an expression whereby one would declare that he or she had decided to follow Jesus. One early Christian bishop said, whoever, says the Lord, does not carry his cross, come after me, and come after me cannot be my disciple." Receiving the baptism of water, we make the same agreement when we promise to be crucified and to die and to be buried with him.
I pray that today you would count the cost. Maybe you've already decided to follow Jesus, which is great. But consider and reevaluate the cost. It costs everything to follow Jesus. It costs everything. But it brings the deepest sense of peace. And it's the best way to make sense of the world. You could reject discipleship. You could decide for non-discipleship. But you would lose the opportunity to encounter the peace of Christ. Consider the cost. Take some time to consider it. If you need to talk to me or have some sort of Bible study, something, feel free to do that. If you're online, feel free to send a message of some sort. But consider the cost. There is a need to make a decision. And it is a serious decision. But if you decide, and I pray that you do, decide to follow Christ and you haven't been baptized, that is the way to demonstrate to the world. The church has been doing this practice for the last 2,000 years. You're baptized and you have declared that I am going to follow Jesus. Consider the cost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here. I pray that today your spirit may have touched everyone here. That they may see that following Jesus is costly. But Lord, following Jesus is the best decision that we could make. Because through it, we are able to follow Jesus, the deliverer, the healer of our souls. And we want that. We really do. There is torment that happens within our hearts. There is distraction from this world. There are so many things. But we just want peace. And that peace could only be experienced when we give you, Jesus, everything. Everything. Not just a little part here and a little part there. Everything. Our love for you should be greater than the love that we have for anybody else. Our love for you needs to be supreme and ultimate. And I pray, God, that here we may be, as Encounter Church, a place where we help people count the cost of following Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.